right, Brian, you, we got a goofy intro. You ready? Let's do it. All right, Ty, you ready? Let's do it, Kevin. Time out. Tyler, who are we taking a time out with today? Well, Kevin, thank you. Good morning, Labor Day to everybody. We have Brian Cuban, everybody, uh, the author of The Addicted Lawyer, The Ambulance Chaser that's coming out in December, and a profound lawyer in the state of Texas. And Brian, thank you so much for being on our show, Time Out with Leaders. We usually uh, interview leaders, CEOs in the upstate New York area. We saw your story. Love it that you're an advocate for mental health all the above, and you really bring the heat, man. So can you uh, take us back to what happened on April 7th, 2007? Uh, yes, uh, that was a day when I had uh, that weekend, that was Easter weekend, I had uh, my girlfriend, now my wife at the time, had gone that way for the weekend and I had gone out. Uh, next thing I know, it was two days later and I'm in bed uh, and she's looking down at me and there's cocaine everywhere and there's alcohol. She didn't know about any of this stuff and had a two-day uh, blackout. And uh, she's probably uh, think, wondering if she walked in the right house. I'm trying to think of what lie I can tell to explain this law and order, dun dun, orgy of evidence that I might not be the person I pretended to be. And uh, we ended up going to, uh, taking me, uh, we drove down to a psychiatric hospital for my second trip there. The first trip had been after a near suicide attempt in the summer of 2005 which she didn't know about. And it was that trip standing in that parking lot waiting for intake where I finally realized uh, after decades of cocaine use and alcoholism that there wouldn't be a third trip, I'd be dead. I was close to losing my family, not their love, but my family was growing frustrated uh, as families do when uh, family members struggle with addiction and don't get the help they need and, uh, and resist all attempts to get them the help they need. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, and I'll tell you what else I thought about in that parking lot, guys. I thought about my father, who was at that time, he's passed now, but at that time, uh, in his late 80s and uh, in his mid 80s and a uh, veteran of the Pacific, uh, was on Okinawa during the Battle of Okinawa, uh, fought in Korea, was the middle of three boys like me. He grew up in Pittsburgh. Uh, he and his older brother had an auto trim shop in the same place in Pittsburgh for the same spot for over 40 years. And I thought of something he said to us. So middle-class, hardworking guy, greatest generation. He always said to us, uh, guys, wherever you go in life, uh, whatever happens, uh, pick up the phone and call your brother. Don't uh, make sure you tell your brother you love him. Make sure your brother is going okay. And this was the relationship my dad would had with his middle brothers, with his brothers. And I thought about that. And I wasn't ready to lose my family. And if you want to know how that advice took, guys, mm -hmm. all these decades later, a uh, thousand miles, 1,200 miles from Pittsburgh, Mark, Jeff, and I live walking distance to each other. And uh, my father lived across the street from me until he passed uh, uh, going on three years ago. So uh, that was kind of the moment, the quote unquote aha moment, my recovery tipping point where I decided that it was time mm -hmm. to take that first scary step into whatever recovery looked like. And I had no idea what it looked like at that time. So the next day, I walked into my shrink's office who I'd been lying to, lying to, lying to for two years, not really telling them anything, uh, getting antidepressants while I'm also doing blow and drinking. Well, that works out well. Mm. And uh, finally got honest with him and he suggested residential treatment, rehab. And I refused to go. I was much too important a lawyer, even though I had no cases left. 
and my law practice had collapsed, ego, right? Uh, he suggested 12-step and I, I resisted 12-step. And for those who don't know, the most well-known 12-step is AA, but there are others. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, but I finally decided, said I would go to 12-step. And so I walked in that day, April 8th, and uh, sat down for my first meeting. And now I'm going on 14 and a half years in long-term recovery. Congratulations. That's amazing. That's amazing. You talked about something that Tyler and I uh, joke about is like the feeling of love. Like, um, could you want to go into that and what that, because you tapped back into that, I guess, when on back in that, that April on how you tapped into to really love and, and why we're so afraid to show love sometimes as men? Well, I, I, yeah, I think it's males. And, and for me, for uh, lawyers, yeah, lawyers, are yeah. lawyers are even worse because we're trained <laughs> to take advantage of vulnerability, not show it, right? Uh, for a lawyer yeah, you're to supposed to have it, egos this big. Yeah, for a lawyer to shed a tear is uh, is weakness. But uh, males, uh, I don't. It, males have traditionally, uh, over the course of how our country has developed, it, you know, we we were portrayed as people who can't be weak. Uh, we are gender roles have changed for the better now, obviously. Mm-hmm. But uh, we're the leaders, the the gather, the hunters, right? The, mm-hmm. Men are from men are from Mars, uh, or is it men are from yeah men are from Mars? So it has just been discouraged, uh, from a societal standpoint, for us to cry, for us to be vulnerable, and uh, crying and allowing us to feel our feelings publicly is stereotyped as a sign of weakness, and yeah. it's just not true. It is a sign of healing. It is a sign of. Uh, the strength of uh, resilience, building resilience. Mm -hmm. And this is something that I like to talk about because uh, crying is good, man. Crying is good. Yeah, it's okay to feel and be human. It's okay to be human. And it's, uh, it doesn't mean you have to stand on a street corner and and ball your eyes out. (laughs) You can find a safe place to do it, right? I remember when my, uh, when my dog passed away, uh, Peanut, and we were just so close and you know how we build relationships with animals right oh yeah i love animals i have two cats now uh, my beagle peanut passed away and it was i would go i would get in my car and because i didn't feel i could scream and cry right publicly i would mm-hmm. get in my car and i would drive through these residential neighborhoods screaming at the top of my lugs and pounding the steering wheel so i could get it out yeah and when my father passed, uh, I would get a lawn chair. And in the Jewish, uh, in the Jewish tradition, it's called an unveiling. You have you put the little thing there with his name, and then mm-hmm. a year later, you put the monument up. So, well, we just had the little name plaque there, where he's interned. I would I bought a lawn chair, and I would sit there at his gravesite and just scream at the top of my lungs. It was a safe place for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, dang, Brian. Well, hey, I had a question for you, Brian. When did you get the courage to go like public with your with your addiction or disease, for say? You know, they, they talk about anonymity and all sure. that stuff, right? Well, when did you grow a parent and just say, hey, world, I'm Brian Cuban. This is it. Have at it. Well, let's talk about anonymity. People, and that anonymity for anyone who wants to remain uh, anonymous is fine, right? We all control our own journeys. Mm-hmm. We all have the right to control our own story, or our own journey. But I've learned, and this is uh, data-driven, that people sharing their stories encourages other people 
to recover out loud and that breaks stigma. And there's data to support this, that storytelling out loud breaks stigma. And that all started for me, not with relationship to my struggle with addiction, but my struggle with two eating disorders. I am in recovery from bulimia and exercise bulimia. And uh, men don't, you want to talk about stigma and yeah. you want to talk about uh, men being afraid that it's weakness and uh, recovery from eating orders is very stigmatized for males. Oh, uh, about 30 to 40% of all those with eating disorders are male, but only one in 10, if that will seek treatment. Wow. And, and so for me, it was very, it was, a, it's very considered very shameful. And it was, oh man, over a decade ago, at least uh, maybe 14 or 15 years, I was reading this article about this model by the name of Carolyn Resting, this Brazilian model who died from complications from anorexia. <laughs> and I'm looking at the comments and there are males in the comments. This is when they allowed comments on, yeah. <laughs> online. There were males in the comments uh, talking about their struggles. And I, was, I thought to myself, wow, I'm not alone in my struggle. And that was really my first realization and aha moment again, that I was not alone in my struggle uh, in my recovery from my eating disorder. So I went on my blog, a blog that doesn't exist now, this, uh, one of my early blogs, and I wrote about my re struggle with uh, bulimia. And that was really my first entree into recovering out loud. Mm -hmm. And then it transitioned into addiction and out my struggle with alcohol and cocaine. That mm -hmm. was really the genesis of my uh, recovering out loud and my writing about it. That article, I moved the article to my current blog and I think it's still there. That's it. That I wrote, I just want to say in 2007 or 2008. Wow. When you, when you wrote The Addicted Lawyer and like some of the other novels that you've now written and, and the upcoming, uh, The Ambulance Chaser, big, big difference, obviously, in the types of books. Yeah, The are. Addicted Lawyer is more memoir. Correct. Novels are all fiction. Yes, yes. And, and, and in that book, was it kind of um, therapeutic, I guess, to write down your experience sure. in your life? Well, my, my book before that, Shattered Image, which was more about my struggle with body image eating disorder, mm -hmm. that was actually a journey of cathartic recovery. Wow. Uh, that was a release of pain, of shame. Uh, not the best written book. It was self-published, uh, unlike The Addicted Lawyer, which is traditionally published. But it, that for sure was a journey of self-exploration and uh, just letting out the pain. The Addicted Lawyer was some of that, but it was more a acknowledgement that the legal profession struggles from these mm -hmm. issues in ten, uh, tenfold. Yeah. Uh, the Addicted Lawyer, uh, uh, lawyers struggle with alcohol, uh, problem drinking, quote unquote, alcoholism at over twice the rate of the general public. Wow. Uh, we have the highest white collar suicide rate, professional suicide rate. We have one of the highest depression rates. And I saw this as I partied mm -hmm. with lawyers, did cocaine with lawyers, mm -hmm. as I did cocaine in the courthouses, the federal and the state courthouses, as I showed up at court hearings high on cocaine, we have a problem. And yeah. so I decided that this was a problem that, need to, that needed to be uh, flushed out into the open. Wow. And that is why I wrote The Addicted Lawyer. Wow, that's so true. And The Addicted Lawyer isn't just my story. It is the story of law students, mm -hmm. uh, other lawyers who have struggled. So it's not just memoir, but The Addicted Lawyers also has funny stories. Yeah. In 2007, for those who don't know, my brother owns the Dallas Mavericks. In 2007, <laughs> uh, when we went to the championship for the first time, I was getting tickets from him, really nice tickets, and trading them to my cocaine dealer for <laughs> scalpers and cocaine. So, you know, 
looking back on it now, humorous story. And there's a funny yeah. story behind that. I can tell you if you have time. But I was then flushing in the toilet. But uh, I was doing things like that. So yeah. uh, there were, uh, I thought there was a strong need and a void to fill when it came to lawyers struggling with alcohol and, uh, and uh, drugs. And, yeah. and what kind of feedback have you gotten from that uh, with your peers in the law profession? Because I, I share my story every now and then, Brian. I'm just a, a puny little person on this side. Uh, well, obviously, here. the last name helps. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you can't be intellectually dishonest about that, right? Yeah. Uh, I get it. I do get attention because of Mark and uh, because of my last name. But uh, the addicted lawyer, I am the lawyer, not him. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the addicted lawyer has done well. It, uh, I speak at I speak at law schools. I speak at law firms. A lot of big law firms. Not as much since COVID hit. Mm -hmm. uh, but I do do some virtual stuff. But uh, it has it has the addicted lawyer has uh, gained a foothold within the legal profession and outside the legal profession. Yeah. And so uh, I'm very happy I wrote it. And uh, you it seem has, passionate about when you speak to students in law school, because it, I guess you can go back to when you were in law school and you and, and some of the talks that I, I listened to, like many of us, we weren't really focused on the education. My, my sister graduated. So we are Penn State was a big thing, but that was such a big school and not something that I was interested in. But you talk about becoming a freshman and then then sophomore year already finding your way into to, to alcoholism oh yeah my, and, my well my eating disorder started my freshman year wow i was at a branch campus in area called Barron college uh and then and that started my freshman year uh and then i started uh, really moving into problem drinking my sophomore year uh the moment i turned 21 i was on first name basis with the state store guy yeah and, uh, <laughs> You know, in Pennsylvania, we have states, they have state stores, liquor stores. But uh, yeah, and so I was going to class drunk. I was drinking alone in the alleys of Penn State uh, with a bottle of tequila before I'd go into the bars, drinking and getting drunk to go in and get drunker in the hopes that I might become social. But in the end, you just become a drunken idiot and, and a stupor and uh, binging and purging. It was miserable. And I had also developed exercise bulimia, which is obsessive compulsive. Uh, exercise for the primary purpose of offsetting calories. So I was, I was in this cycle, this vicious cycle at Penn State where I was running 10 to 20 miles a day. I was drinking, I was binging and purging, an awful strain on my body, just an awful strain on my body. And I really didn't have any friends. I was a loner. I remember, uh, I, I just felt that everyone hated me and I projected out that I was not worthy of anything. And I think a lot of that stems some from, some, from some very traumatic bullying in high school. Yeah. I was bullied severely over my weight. I was an obese kid and I was even physically assaulted. Uh, during the Penn State football games, I would see, I was so, it just pained me to see all these kids walking to Beaver Stadium, laughing and friends and with their girlfriends. And I couldn't even bear to look at them because I felt that I would never get that. Yeah. Right? Wow. I would never, I would never have friends or a girlfriend or anything like that. So I would go out on these long runs mm -hmm. that I would make sure lasted for the length of the game. Mm -hmm. And I would come back and the game would be over. I literally tried to run. I remember one time, and this is in my first book from Penn state to Altoona, which is about 30 miles or so. Wow. And I didn't make it, but, uh, that is how my mind worked. Yeah. 
And is it because you didn't feel like you were going to be, and it was almost like you were living up to other people's expectations. And I think we can all do that when we're, we're, we're almost like bullied, the, the kids bullied at recess. And- I think it was because I hated myself and, in that, yeah. and because I hated myself, everyone else must hate me too. Wow. And of course, they're not thinking about me. They're thinking about who hates them and mm-hmm. their own problems at Penn State, right? Uh, about their own issues and their, 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 their struggles as freshmen and sophomores and whatever. But that's, in my mind, I, I hated myself to such a degree that it was impossible in my mind that anyone could look at me and like me. Well, dang, well, how about today, Brian? I mean, we, we look back on our lifestyle, right? And here we are on Labor Day. Yes. 10.30, yes, yes. 9.30 in the morning, having a cup of coffee, talking on Labor Day. I, Coke Zero, for God's sakes, you know? <laughs> the you only gotta... Coke I do nowadays. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, this is a blessing in, in, in itself right here. You know, I'm, I'm sitting here looking at a lake on Labor Day, not thinking about a, a drink, drug, whatever, you know, oh. and I know I know how that kind of affected you back in the day, just like myself. Uh, well, what's your life look like right nowadays? Uh, my life is great. Happen? I've been, uh, my, my, my wife and I uh, are married and we've been together over 15 years. Wow. Uh, and she stood by me. She was with me at rock bottom and uh, she stood by me while I, uh, found recovery and rebuilt the broken trust. And uh, we, have, we have a wonderful marriage. My two cats, I uh, love my cats. And uh, I see my brothers when I can. My, uh, my mother, uh, I'm going to Pittsburgh uh, for my law school reunion at the end of this month. Awesome. Uh, to see, and, I'll, and I'll see my mom. I, I, I've now written a, my first novel. So life is good. And, and, and it's funny when I think back guys, I think back and, uh, and I look at the timeline, right? Uh, addicted to cocaine, addicted to alcohol, uh, a near suicide, two trips to a psychiatric hospital. I've also been married three times, all of them failing because of drugs and alcohol, uh, struggled, uh, struggle with my relationship with my family. All, all of these things that I went through were, were the only thing I accomplished during these decades was surviving day to day. Well, yes, I did graduate law school and I did get but I, it was uh, it was despite myself, right? Hmm. Uh, I didn't do very well, uh, and so I look at all of that, and I look at what's happened since. I have my sobriety, I am in recovery, I have a marriage, I have a wonderful family relationship. I'm now a, uh, I mean, I'll toot my own horn, nationally sought after speaker in the areas of uh, recovery and especially in the legal profession. I've, I've written three books. So all of these things have happened since mm-hmm. I found recovery. Mm-hmm. And, I'm fine, and I'm at peace with who I am. Mm-hmm. It's okay to be shy. I, I'm not shy when I speak, but I'm a shy person. I, I am mm-hmm. a reserved person. I'm not a going out person. And, uh, and, it is, and I've realized that I am enough. Mm-hmm. Shy, uh, have, you know, whether I'm heavy, whether I'm thin, whatever, whatever body type you know, lose my hair, right? Uh, uh, hip replacement, limping along. I, I've run eight marathons. Now turtles pass me crossing the street. That's okay. <laughs> That's okay because I am enough and you are enough and, that, and it's okay to be that. Mm-hmm. And I'm at peace with that. Well, I'm all fired up for this, uh, this ambulance chaser, uh, Brian. Can you kind of dive into sure. how you thought of it? The Ambulance Chaser, which is my first fiction novel, comes out December 7th. Uh, started with a character in a dream, believe it or not, uh, a few years ago, where I was having a reoccurring dream 
about this person, not necessarily me, this amorphous person who was standing at a bonfire with a childhood friend throwing, and this in, in Pittsburgh, throwing bodies into this bonfire. And uh, just, they were throwing bodies in and watching these bodies burn. I know, dark dream. Yeah, dark, dark, dark I'm dreams. A very, <laughs> I'm a very vivid dreamer and I remember all of my dreams. Wow. And, uh, but and it was a reoccurring dream. And, and then all of a sudden the dream, it's me 30, 40 years later, wondering uh, why the police haven't arrested me and terrified that I'm going to arrest it. That is the genesis of the ambulance chaser. No, I've never murdered someone and throwing that. <laughs> so, so you don't have to worry about that. But uh, the ambulance chaser is about a Pittsburgh personal injury lawyer, Jason Feldman, who uh, stands, who suddenly accused of the murder of a high school classmate 30 years prior. And he becomes a fugitive from justice to find the one person, an old high school classmate and his uh, childhood best friend who has gone into hiding, who can both prove his innocence and save the life of his only son who has been kidnapped. Wow. Wow. That's exciting. That's really exciting. <laughs> it's, it's awesome to just have that creativity. Um, uh, I'll tell you, fiction writing is a different process. I know yeah. my own story, right? I know my own story, so that's a little bit easier. You still have to learn about writing, but uh, it is a completely different animal, and it has been an interesting process. And uh, there's a lot of me and Jason. I was a personal injury lawyer. Uh, I struggled. Jason struggles with uh, substance use and uh, trying to figure out. Jason uh, has a strained. I don't have any children, but Jason has a strained relationship with his son and his ex-wife, who happens to be the district attorney of Allegheny <laughs> County in Pittsburgh. And so uh, there's some of me and Jason, mm -hmm. and uh, it, it, I think it's a, it's a fun story. It, it, the interesting thing about fiction writing is there are only, and a lot of people don't know this, there are only eight or nine plots in the entire world. Right? Yeah. Anything you <laughs> Just read, different characters. Every, <laughs> that's right. You got it. There, everything you have been done, everything you have ever written has been done. There are no new plots ever, ever. <laughs> So now you're ruining every friction with not just kidding. No, but what there are are interesting characters yes. and fun storylines. Yeah. And keeping people on the edge of their seat, right? Keeping them guessing. Mm -hmm. But I heard one person say, well, this is like the fugitive. Well, yeah, kind of, right? Yeah. Person on the run. There is no, there is nothing that hasn't been done. So you talk, you talked about too is um, sometimes people are, I, I think we're hearing like the great resignation right now. Brian, and we're hearing like uh, people that are finding themselves. And you talked about choosing a career that wasn't even unlocking your purpose. Can you go back to choosing why you chose to be a lawyer? And you said you chose for all the wrong reasons. And then you came. Absolutely. To when I was a senior, I was a, I was a uh, criminal justice major at Penn State. I wanted to be a cop. That okay. would have worked out well, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I'd have been the first guy in the evidence room trading out the baby laxative for the blow. Yeah, <laughs> kind of like the French connection. <laughs> but uh, I'm sitting in the placement office at Penn State flipping through, but we didn't have computers back then. I'm flipping through this little books, book of cop jobs uh, <laughs> looking for I wanted to apply. And there are two guys sitting next to me and they're talking about taking the LSATs. And I start listening to them and they're from Pittsburgh. And they're one of the schools they were applying was the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. They wanted to apply. And I'm listening and the bells start going off in my head. Not the bells that I want to be a lawyer. I had no concept of what it was like to be a lawyer. I didn't know any lawyers. 
Uh, mm -hmm. It wasn't anything that I'd ever thought about. The bells of, hey, I can stay in school for three more years, law school is three years, and I can binge and purge, and I can run, and I can drink, and I can engage in the same survival behaviors that got me through four years at Penn State. And that made perfect sense to me because at that time, I wasn't living, guys. I was surviving mm -hmm. moment to moment, second to second. And that's all I knew. I couldn't see three years out. I couldn't, all I saw was my finger in front of my nose. Mm -hmm. And that's all I was interested in. That's why I went to law school. No other reason. No other reason. And you think that's, people say, well, that doesn't happen. Well, maybe my unique set of fat, my fat set of facts are unique, but I talk to law students all the time. Who don't, I won't say, let me, I talk to law students. I won't say it's common, but it's not unheard of mm -hmm. for me to talk to law students who, do not want to be there to, for all the wrong reason. Family pressure first, they felt pressured, perfectionist. I mean, everyone in their family is a lawyer. Boom, boom, boom. I can reel off the reasons I get. They do not want to be there. Mm -hmm. And what happens is that pressure, they feel triggers into mental health issues. Mm -hmm. And so that is you, that, that happens. Well, you mentioned, uh, you know, people asking you what's five years down the road look like, and you're like, dude, I'm, I'm looking right here, you know, about a foot away. I have a lot of uh, experience with that too, Brian. You know, people would ask me about five years down the road. I'd say, why the hell are you asking about five years down the road? You know, I don't yeah. know what I'm going to get done. Today. But you know what the difference is? You ask me what five years down the road looks like now, I can tell you. Exactly. What I want it to look like. Exactly, man. And, uh, you know, well, what, what, what does it look like nowadays for you, Brian? Uh, it can, it, hopefully I'll still be uh, 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 living, my, uh, living my recovery out loud and trying to change one life at a time, right? I mean, every time I walk into an auditorium, uh, every time I walk into a room of people, I have one goal as I share. I have one goal. That is that one person takes something away from my story, something, and decides to... Uh, take that first step into a living a better life, whether it's recovery, whether it's being bullied, whether it's the relationship with family. And you never know what people are going to take from your story. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you, as a quick example, when I first started speaking, I had no speaking skills. So I started speaking in Rotary and Lions Clubs uh, because I could go into these places. Uh, if I mess up my story, no one's really going to, you know, it's not going to go viral, right? That I sucked. <laughs> And you get a free lunch or breakfast. So what? And at the time I was speaking about just eating disorders. So my very first one, I walk into this room. This was my very first uh, Rotary Club. And it's these people in their 60s, 50s and 60s, all these men and a few women in their 50s, 60s. And I'm going to talk to them about body image and eating disorders. Talk about a tough audience yeah. at, uh, at, at nine in the morning. So I story and I'm thinking, oh, did I bomb, right? They're all glazed eyes <laughs> and they were very cordial and in reality some of them they talked to me about their grandkids who were struggling with eating disorders mm -hmm. uh or, or their kids i get back to my house and i open twitter mm -hmm. there was a from this young girl who i didn't know she said you don't know me but my father is a lawyer and he was at your talk and we were having dinner together for the first time in a year wow and so, and she said thank you and i screen capped that and i still have it 
So it wasn't the addiction, it wasn't the eating disorders, it was family. It was my talk about family and my relationship with my father and my brothers that resonated with him. You never know what's gonna resonate. Mm. So I walk into a room and if 99 people say, man, that sucked. And yeah. one person says, thank you, I, I, I'm ready for recovery or I'm ready for this. It was a success and that's what I want. That's what I wanna be doing five years from now. And I also wanna have more, uh, I want to have sequels to the ambulance chaser five years from now. So I know what I want yeah. and I want to have continue on with my relationship with them, with my wife and, you know, and my brother is my wonderful relationship and be better in my recovery, continue in my recovery and continue to improve myself. And so uh, I have a much uh, more, uh, much clearer vision of what I want and uh, kind of an HD vision than I did uh, before I went into recovery. Mm. Awesome, Brian. Well, uh, what, what, uh, thanks for sharing that with us, by the way, and, and all this, but this is awesome. This is, uh, this is the highlight of my year right now. You know, you, you, about this. Um, what resource or book do you kind of like is your go-to? Um, and when someone's besides your own, if someone says, Brian, what can I get into or read? Cause I want to learn more about my disease or my, uh, recovery. Uh, for it's, if it's a lawyer, I tend to recommend, there are very few books out there. Although now it is much more people are writing them, but, uh, when I wrote my book, there was only one other, and I always recommended it. Here, memoir. It's written by Lisa, Lisa Smith called "A Girl Walks Out of a Bar." So wonderful, and uh, and she was a she was a a lawyer at a, a big law firm, and so that's when I recommend lawyers. As far as body image issues, one of the ones I always recommend uh, people are struggling is called "The Broken Mirror" by Dr. Catherine Phillips. As far as addiction, uh, just straight addiction, it just depends on what the issue is. I'm more about recommending uh, resources, uh, straight up resources like Al-Anon and uh, whether it's 12 step or smart recovery, whatever your path to recovery is. Uh, not everyone does 12 step. Uh, people have their own path to recovery and I'm all about that. Uh, abstinence had to be my path, but I know there are many other paths to recovery. I know people struggling with opiate addiction who want suboxone and uh, methadone, and they're they're leading their uh, they're leading good lives with that with that path of recovery. So I don't I do not judge any path. We meet people where they are. Are you leading your best life? That's what I want to know, right? With family, with work, with your children, with your pets. How does your life look? Mm -hmm. That's what I want to know. It's that is what it's about, not whether you choose my path of recovery. Yeah. So everybody's uh, so, unique. Wow, that's um one of the one of the things you also talked about is um, motivation, and you talked about going through life um, when you first started going through life. And I think I, 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 I was a sheep myself. Um, and we talked about not finding our purpose, and we're kind of just going through life, and we're just going through the motions, and really going through other people's expectations about having a job, a stable job that you could be miserable in, but you need the money because you want to afford the house that everybody wants you to have. Can you kind of talk about living up to those expectations and how sure. dangerous and, uh, it is to, to live? And I guess that I get I get that all the time, and yeah. I mean I get the question. Obviously, uh, not everyone has a billionaire brother who's internationally known. I get, well, yeah. well, what's that like, right? Well, my first, as I sit here today, well, he's my brother. Uh, that's that's what it's like. Uh, I don't I don't look at him in those terms. Mm -hmm. But there was a time uh, when I had no purpose. Yeah. I had no. Uh, concept of who Brian Cuban was. Mm. I was an empty shell full of shame and uh, full of self-loathing. So how can I replace that? I had no cause in myself. 
Well, it became very easy, easy for me when Mark became internationally famous to say, you know what? I can be Mark Cuban's brother and I can date girls half my age. All, all those relationships were based on drugs. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can walk into any bar I want. People will put cocaine in my pocket. I can cross the lines, you know, the bar lines. And because that's what my life was, was just clubs, cocaine, drinking, mm-hmm. this, that. And I can be Mark Cuban's brother. And, and, and frankly, I was the biggest douchebag in Dallas while I was doing that. But, uh, <laughs> and I could feel all of the loathing and emptiness in my body by doing that. And I can be that. I can, I can get all of my self-confidence by just glomming off his fame. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what I did because I had no self-concept uh, co- of what Brian Cuban, who Brian Cuban was. And I call it name fame, right? I, I could use the name fame to uh, boost myself up. And it was a miserable way to live. It was mm-hmm. a miserable. How did you start and, peeling back that onion as, as you uh, start finding recovery. out who you were? I mean, it was in recovery. Okay. I, I had to peel back the onion to a little boy who was bullied, mm-hmm. who was fat shamed, who uh, was afraid to tell anyone. And I had to let that little boy uh, cry and mm-hmm. cry with that little boy. And I had to peel back that the layers and I had dragged a little Brian around on a suitcase on a chain over a gravel road attached mm-hmm. to a tire my entire life. <laughs> and I had to cut it loose and tell him it was okay and it wasn't his fault. And that is in a lot of therapy and I'm still in therapy today. And what do you think crying does for us, Brian? Because I know it feels good nowadays to feel and to shed some tears, but can I get your your experience or your knowledge on what crying does? Uh, crying cleanses me, uh, you know, in the general sense of whatever a cleanse should mean to somebody, right? And that means something different. Crying, uh, crying is my release. I, I, but I'm a crier. I, I can cry at a note of music, right? I can cry at a movie trailer. Uh, I mean, notes of music will make me cry certain yeah. uh, songs. So that's me. I'm just a crier. But you talk about being a feeler. You're a feeler and you found yeah. that to be so, and you're not really, you're, you said you were the, obviously the small percentage in being a lawyer. What, what does it mean to be a feeler? Because I think Tyler and I are feelers and we can kind of attach uh, in emotions and I conversations. Mean, there, there are good parts and I, I yeah, I, there, there are good parts and there are bad parts. I mean, I'll see a dead animal in a road, a dead squirrel, and it will ruin me. It will ruin my day for two days. Wondering if it felt pain, wondering if it had little squirrels, right, that, are, that miss it. And, I, and, and, you, and we laugh at that, but those are thought processes that I go yeah. through. And I yeah. don't know that those are necessarily healthy. But uh, I, yeah, I, I, I'm an empath, uh, I feel, and, uh, and uh, it has its advantages. It, it, it helps me uh, connect with people who I'm trying to help. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it helps me uh, understand who I am. So uh, I think for me, crying is good, and uh, and uh, I should have been I should have been an actor because I can cry on a I can I can cry on a on a drop. <laughs> Let it rain, Brad. Well, what what advice do you give young lawyers nowadays when you see a young buck walk in the room? And I, I'm pretty sure since you're an empath, you can almost even feel them, whether they're there for the right reasons or not. Kind of kind of what what do you, how do you set that stage? I I, I tell you, you have to whatever. Whatever reason you're there for, you have to make time for you. You have to make time for your self-care. You have to make time for your mental health. And you have to take care of you because no one is going to take care of you but you. And you want to do that before 
uh, you're in a position where other people are forced to take care of you. So you're billing all, all these hours a week, or even if you're not a lawyer, you're working all these hours, things are tough at home. Uh, you, you have to you have to find the things that give you joy and find even minutes for that, whether it's meditation, mindfulness, uh, a bike ride, uh, you know, whatever, just find time to uh, clear the mechanism that I like to say, find time to clear the mechanism. Clear the mechanism. And Kevin Costner said that and for the love uh, of the game. You got it. <laughs> clear the mechanism. Now you know where I stole that from. <laughs> so here's the question, guys. <laughs> is is that a uh, here? Here's the million dollar question: Is for the love of the game a uh, romantic movie or a baseball movie? <laughs> oh, romantic! I think it's romantic. Yeah, <laughs> romantic. I mean, it, it tries to play off baseball, but <laughs> in the airport watching him pitch that last game yeah. in his mid forties, for God's that's sake. That's like that's like Brian. The question of Die Hard: Is it a Christmas movie? <laughs> is it a holiday right. movie or not? That's right. Die Hard is a Die Die, die Hard is a Christmas movie. <laughs> Well, Brian, what's, what's it like we'll turn change the gear real quick what's it like uh i did the opposite of you you know i'm from uh, texas arkansas area and i moved up to you know the northeast almost canada for god's sakes up here you did the opposite what, what's it like for a, a northeasterner from pennsylvania to move down to the to the fort or the dallas area uh i'm still bleed i mean i still bleed black and gold uh I <laughs> I, I'm, I'm a diehard Pirates fan. Baseball's always been my thing. And there's a baseball in the, in the uh, ambulance chase. So there's a lot of baseball stuff in there. But uh, baseball is always, I grew up with Pirates. I've been a Pirates fan. Uh, my father took me to my first game at Forbes Field against the Mets to watch Tom Seaver pitch in 1969. Oh my gosh. That's how long I, I, I've been a fan. And, uh, and uh, it's been tough times. It's been lean days for the Pirates, but I'm always a fan. I'm a Steelers fan. Penguins fan, but I live and die with the Pirates. Uh, do I do I like? Do, am I a Cowboys fan? I won't say necessarily a fan, but I like it when they do okay because it's good for the city, right? Yeah. I want the Rangers, the Cowboys, and the Stars to do well because it's good for the city. But uh, you don't have to ask who I'm rooting for if they're playing any Pittsburgh games. <laughs> That's it. I got to come up to the PNC that's uh, 21 feet, 21 foot tall for Mr. Roberto Clemente. Did you? Uh, were you a big Roberto fan growing oh, my up? Oh, goodness, yes. Uh, I write about that in the uh, first book, Shattered uh, Image. One of the most traumatic days of my life was when Roberto, when I walked downstairs, I was 11 years old, and uh, my grand, my parents were out for New Year's Eve, and uh, there was my grandfather told me that Roberto Clemente had died, and I didn't believe him. And back then, we only had newspapers, right? And it still wasn't even in the newspaper. It was on the radio. Wow. So I, did, I didn't believe him until I, I actually... I went and turned on the radio, KDK in Pittsburgh. That's all we had back then. You had the black and white TV, you had the radio, a few radio stations and a few television stations. So uh, until I actually heard it on the radio, I, I didn't believe it. Being uh, at some of these um, events, right? I, I think like um, we think back to like sporting events. What have you learned, I guess, from your brothers, like not fame or image but he's seemed to stay pretty humble and we talk about leadership checking their egos how did you i guess how do what what advice do you have for people to help check their egos to i guess stay human and, and stay to be a feeler and and, and stay grounded? Uh, i mean stay i i because uh, people are so different uh yeah. 
but I can tell you how I perceive. I, I never speak for Mark, right? I never speak Yeah, no, 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 no. But we have stayed, all of us have stayed very grounded in how our father raised us. And so everyone's going to be different. Our, like I said, our father basically fixed cars for a living. Yeah. Uh, very working class. Uh, you know, our vacations were, we call it the Jewish Riviera in the Poconos up here. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, if, you, if, you, if, you, if you've seen Dirty Dancing, those are the kind of vacations we, we took every summer. And uh, we've, uh, we, we stayed grounded in what he, uh, he, he just, uh, hardworking, greatest generation. He was the most giving, kindest person you've ever met in your life. Uh, always uh, taught us, uh, he was, uh, the things he taught us uh, about giving and philanthropy in his own way, that is, that is what keeps us grounded, what our father has taught us. And, That's uh, amazing. Yeah, he, he had a saying, you know, we, because he, uh, he always, I mean, we were never, I mean, we never had a lot of money, but he always made sure that, uh, in, that we uh, had, that we had, and we have to keep, we have to keep it in perspective, right? Even in middle class, there's privilege, right? We have oh, skin yeah. color privilege and we have privilege and the, and I would be disingenuous to not acknowledge that. Mm -hmm. So uh, we try to stay grounded in who he taught us to be growing up. Mm -hmm. That's how I can talk about how we, uh, how, how we do it and how I perceive that Mark and Jeff do it in terms of what they've said publicly. Jeff doesn't speak publicly that much, but how Mark and uh, how Mark has spoken publicly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love that privilege talk too. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And you're definitely a giver, Brian, just, you know, yeah. giving yeah, your you story to, away. I mean, I mean, out there. Privilege, is, privilege is important to talk about because uh, yeah. I talk about recovery and uh, we have to be honest here. There's this saying that addiction doesn't discriminate. But in terms of how it impacts people, it really does. Yes, right? I agree. It impacts communities of color, yeah. uh, underprivileged communities and different communities. Go to Kensington and Philadelphia and yeah. talk about and, and see how privilege discriminates. Uh, so in, in terms of how it impacts different uh, communities, there, there really is. And in terms of resources. Oh, definitely. Uh, well, I, even, I mean, cocaine and coke or, uh, or, or, and crack. I mean, you take those two things, I mean, it's, it's pretty pretty close example. Absolutely. Absolutely. The yeah. Government the war, telling you right there. The war on drugs absolutely discriminates yeah. in its impact. So I would be disingenuous to not talk about the impact of privilege in uh, in my, my existence because even just on the most superficial level, how many people have a billionaire brother who is willing to and still would do anything for him? Now that doesn't mean I took a, took advantage of resources yeah. right when I was struggling, uh, but. Uh, yeah, we, 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 we have to be honest about that and, and be real about that. I love how real and you are. 99.999% of the community, uh, the, the world didn't have the privilege that I have uh, in yeah. terms of resources that I had access to. Yeah. How do you think we level that playing field for everybody out there, Brian? Uh, well, I'm a Democrat. <laughs> I believe we need to go into, uh, you're not, now you're a uh, Republican, listeners will hate me. But I believe we need to enter communities. Mm -hmm. and we need to enter our privileged communities. We need to find the money and put these resources in there. We need to go into communities. We need to have community-based treatment. We need to have community-based uh, resources. And these communities are barren, right? Whether whether they're, they are uh, barren of uh, we have uh, uh, shopping. They're barren of food, right? They they only have they're, they're only eating at fast food restaurants. They're barren of psychiatric treatment. They're barren of uh, addiction treatment. 
We need money and we need to pour money into these communities for community-based resources because that is how recovery starts, right? It has to start in the community. And if it doesn't start in the community, what happens is if we don't have the res- these resources, you guys got me on my soapbox. Uh, I'm ro- I'll roll it right out for you. I love it. <laughs> let's say you go into treatment, right? If we don't, let's say you go into treatment, you find the treatment, you get out 30 days. What happens? You pop right back into the community with no resources on what's going to happen. You're going to relapse. Mm-hmm. So we need to build from grassroots mm-hmm. where we have uh, a job-based uh, initiatives. We have recovery-based initiatives. We have mental health-based initiatives. Look at Dallas. We're finally getting some mental health resources, mm-hmm. but it is a mental health desert if mm-hmm. you don't have insurance. Yeah. Right. These well, people don't have insurance. So do you feel? Do you feel it's because the politicians don't have real-life examples like you and gone through that experience? And they're. Uh, they're the ones I wouldn't say that's something it, but uh, I would say it took. It took how many decades for us to get to this awful place? Yeah. And unfortunately, it's going to take uh, inch by inch, that's how politics works, to get out of it. Yeah. But we need people just on the ground. And there are wonderful people on the ground. I'm not on the ground. I'm sharing my story, right? Yeah. I mean, there are, little, there are people going into these communities and building these resources. Wow. We need to support them with money and with people. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I was always thinking, you know, you get the, the 28 day stint or the 30 day stint, you know, it's almost like a dry out center, you know, then you, you come oh. out to the real world and it's just hits people in yeah, the face. That's right. And we do it all over again. And people so what happens when you leave? Them. What happens if you if you were even lucky enough to get into treatment, whether it's, uh, you know, state based, county based, if you don't have insurance, or you have the privilege to actually you get a scholarship or you have the privilege, privilege of insurance, a huge privilege. Mm-hmm. to uh, to get into a facility what happens the whole you, you you pop back out they give you a list of uh 12 step meetings and you're going right back into the community and there's very little follow-up uh how are how is that how is that expected to work in terms of maintaining long-term sobriety or or whatever your recovery looks like right if you're on suboxone or whatever else it's opioid addiction it's broken the system the treatment system is broken mm-hmm. Sure is, but and then, I mean, we, like we can talk about jail. We can talk about jail. Uh, I was just gonna say that we look like the same. They're just not paying attention to the right things or the right parts. I of the mean, process. people get p- treatment in jail, and, and treatment is. And when I talk about treatment, uh, people use treatment. AA is not treatment, right? AA is a mutual aid group. Mm-hmm. Uh, evidence-based treatment is not existent in jails. Uh, very few of them even offer suboxone uh, if you have opioid addiction. So. You, you walk out of a jail, you walk out of prison and the, I mean, I don't have the stat in front of me, but the odds of relapse and the odds of fatal overdose relapse skyrocket, mm-hmm. skyrocket. Mm-hmm. It's just a broken system. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing a lot of more talk about mental health awareness right now. Uh, I think because of the pandemic, I think suicide rates, uh, we had another special guest, Ann Constantino on, and she held heads Horizon Solutions up, or Horizon Corporations up in Buffalo. Um, and it just seems like now mental health is kind of okay to talk about, but you were kind of talking about it before it was like, okay, what was that like? Like, how did you put on your leadership pants and say, it's okay to talk about this before it was cool. You just, you, you just do it. I didn't even think about that. Right. I had yeah. a story. I wanted to tell my story. Uh, when I, I wasn't really thinking about, uh, societal stigma at that time, that is something 
uh, I had to be educated about like a lot of people as we move through the field uh, by listening to very uh, smart people who talk about stigma. So when I started, it was just about sharing my story. I really wasn't thinking about that, but I became more aware of that and I became informed. And uh, yeah, it's okay to say there was a, there was a uh, uh, initiative here in Dallas. My brother Mark did a video for it. You can look it up. Okay to say, it's okay to say I need help. It's okay to say uh, I'm struggling. Mm-hmm. And it is, it, it's okay to, and it's okay to say, uh, how can I help you? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's okay to reach out to people we think who are struggling. Yeah, and I think to me, uh, Brian, it's, uh, it just takes one person for me to believe in. And you, you've touched so many lives, I can only imagine. Uh, you hope so, but again, it's one person. Uh, there, there's one, one person, uh, one life, right? There's a, there's, there's a, uh, in, in, in Judaism, there's a saying, it's uh, Kabbalistic, it's called tikkun olam. It's changing the world with acts of kindness. Love that. And uh, I just try to change my little corner of the world with, with uh, acts of kindness, one at a time. God, that's amazing. Now that's I gotta amazing. ask, how often do you get told you look like Franco Harris? Who, me? You, no, 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 no. Me? Yeah. <laughs> never never now you have <laughs> now you have <laughs> the idea that it's okay to say i need help um because tyler and i again we talked to a lot of ceos and i think ceos are in that that weird predicament right they if they ask for help sometimes it's a sign of weakness and they can't yeah. appear to be weak and and a lot of people then then go to more of these sometimes addictive behaviors, right? Um, I think sometimes we'd be shocked with who has problems that we perceived as to have these perfect yeah. lives. You talk about social media, right? How does social media have an impact on some of the some of the challenges that you've had to overcome and addictions you've had to overcome? How how much more challenging is it is it or will it be for our youth with social media today? Uh... I think in terms of, well, we, we have to compartmentalize it out. I think in terms of things like body image yes. and things like perfection, I think it's a huge problem. Yeah. I think it's a huge problem. Uh, people uh, just, I mean, they want to, they want to look happy, right? Even when they're not, even when things are falling apart. And so. No one shares those people. photos on Facebook, right? When they're crying. <laughs> yeah. They all look they're so, smoothed over, they're so smoothed over. It doesn't look like the same person, but you know, I don't judge that because everyone's going through something. Right. Mm-hmm. And if that's what Pete, if that's what someone wants to do, it, it's not my place to say, don't smooth over your face yeah. or, or use these smoothing tools uh, that make you look like you're not the same person. But uh, if that is what's getting you through, that is not for me to say it's mm-hmm. uh, people have to come to their own self-realization. Mm-hmm. But uh it, it can be a problem with that. Uh, yeah, I mean, in my day, right, before Al Gore invented the internet, uh, that was a joke, guys. <laughs> <laughs> some people get that. You guys are too young to get that. So some people get that and some people don't. But uh, uh, we didn't have that, right? The images were the people I saw every day, the prom king, the prom yeah, queen, exactly. people going on dates and things like that. We didn't have that. And so that that's a problem, yeah. And uh and in terms of uh, addiction and recovery, I think actually social media is helping because mm-hmm. people, because we have places to go when you feel ashamed, right? Uh, we have all of these outlets and support groups. So I think overall, social media has been a help in terms of breaking stigma and mental health. Social media has been 
uh, can be helpful. And every like there's a dark side and a positive, right? Mm -hmm. But uh, for me personally, I mean, I've been called a crackhead, a junkie, and people, trolls, right? It's almost always anonymous. Yeah. Uh, but if you don't have, and this is what's scary to some people, for me, it just rolls off. I've learned. I'm, I'm old. I've learned. But uh, people see that, and they uh, that that may inhibit them from sharing publicly because they don't want to be called those things. Mm -hmm. Who wants to be called those things? Yeah. And so there is a dark side as well. Right. But for me, social media has been hugely impactful in amplifying my message. Yeah. So that's that's, that's a good thing. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. And I think you nailed it, all, nailed it on the head, Brian. It just makes you seem not as weird. You know, you see other people, especially like for some reason, for me, celebrities that are going through the same thing. That's one of the first things I Googled, you know, how many people are not drinkers or blah, blah, blah. And you just see this laundry list of people. Sure. Then you sure. realize you know you're not funny? different. You know who the celebrities take the most crap from? It's other people in recovery, right? You shouldn't talk about that. You shouldn't talk about that. We learn in 12 step to work your own side of the street. But, uh, you know, they were the first ones to cross over and then take someone else's inventory about the recovery <laughs> with celebrities, with, when we're celebrities. <laughs> exactly. Well, Brad, I can't thank you enough for being on this uh, morning with us. You know, here we are on a Labor Day, sunny Labor Day, and this is what we're doing. You know, we're talking recovery, talking leadership. And uh, I, I lost a little sleep last night. You know, I was like, how, what the hell is Brian Cuban going to be talking to oh, Kevin? Yeah, no, it's all good. I mean, you want to talk about leadership, uh, recovering out loud is leadership, yeah. right? If you, if you lead, if you recover out loud, tell your story, and some person on the other side of the world, the other side of the country says, you know what, I'm going to reach out to someone today. You have just led. Yeah, exactly. And you don't need that big fancy title. You can leave. You That's can right. still leave. That's it, it, Brian, I just wanted to say thank you, too. Now, no joke to Tyler's point. I was texting him last night. He went to bed early. I was up sweating all night. I was like, what am I going to oh, ask this guy? Um, but you're, you've proven to be such a down-to-earth, genuine person. And, and I think uh, feeling, Tyler and I can feel, is your energy is just electric. You can feel that you really are trying to just make an impact on one CEOs, person's life. I wanted to bring this point because it was important. You brought up an important point. For those CEOs who believe it's weakness, remember... Uh, companies lose billions of dollars to mental health and addiction. People take their cues from you. Your employees top down take their cues from you on what is weakness and what is strength and what their job will look like if they decide to seek help. Think about that. I can't wow. tell you what to do, but think about that. If, you, if we're not going to think about stigma, think about it in terms of dollars mm. and the dollars you can save by changing things systemically from the top down and encouraging people to seek help, letting people know that it's okay to not be okay. Mm -hmm. Wow, thank you.